Powell against Alabama, 287 U.S. 45, 1932. These are the facts. On March 25, 1931, seven Negro youths were on a freight train on its way through Alabama. On that same train and in the same car were seven white boys and two white girls. The Negro and white boys fought. During the fight, all but one of the white boys were thrown from the train. A message was sent ahead reporting the fight. When the train reached the next town, it was met by the police. The white girls claimed that they had been raped by six of the Negroes. The girls and the boys were taken to Scottsboro, Alabama. The word spread, and a large crowd met them when they arrived in Scottsboro. The town was tense, hostile, and excited. State troops were called in to help guard the prisoners, and they stayed with them until after the trial. The defendants were residents of other states. They were all uneducated, illiterate, and unfamiliar with court procedure. The judge who presided over the trial appointed every lawyer in Scottsboro for the purpose of arraigning the prisoners. But no lawyer alone was responsible for all the defendants or any single one of them. Two weeks after their arraignment, the trials began. The state's attorney was ready with his case, but no one appeared to defend the seven youths. Finally, a lawyer from Chattanooga, Tennessee appeared, having been sent to aid the various counsel the court had presumably appointed. He thereupon became the sole attorney for the defense, despite the fact that he was not familiar with Alabama law and did not have an opportunity properly to prepare the defense. The boys were tried in three separate groups, each trial was completed within a single day. The jury found them guilty and asked for the death penalty. The judge sentenced them to death. The Alabama Supreme Court upheld the convictions, but the Chief Justice of the court dissented. The argument by the attorney for the petitioners, in this case, the defendants. May it please the court. The defense contends that the petitioners, these seven Negro boys, were denied due process and equal protection of the laws. By depriving them of these rights, the state of Alabama violated the 14th Amendment. It is our position that the boys were deprived of liberty and threatened with the deprivation of life in a most unfair manner. They were not treated as other prisoners would be. They were not given a fair and impartial trial. They were tried before juries from which qualified members of their own race were systematically excluded. For all practical purposes, they were denied the right of counsel. For the lawyer who did appear to defend these illiterate boys had neither the opportunity to consult with them before the trials, nor had the time to prepare for their defense. The argument by the Attorney General of Alabama, Thomas E. Knight, Jr. May it please the court. The U.S. Supreme Court must not restrict the states in their method of administering justice unless they act arbitrarily and discriminatingly. There is no single form of procedure that makes for due process. What due process is is determined by the law of the state where the trial was held. These convicted criminals were tried under the rules and procedures long prevailing in Alabama. When a defendant charged with a capital offense does not have a lawyer, it is the duty of the court to appoint one for his defense. 
This is what happened in his case. The competence or the needs of counsel are beyond the bounds of the court's inquiry. Had the defense attorney here needed some more time, he could have asked for it. The defense attorney did not do this. The proceedings were therefore legal and the defendants properly convicted under due process of law. The opinion of the court by Mr. Justice Sutherland. However guilty defendants upon due inquiry might prove to have been, they were, until convicted, presumed to be innocent. It was the duty of the court, having their cases in charge, to see that they were denied no necessary incident of fair trial. The sole inquiry which we are permitted to make is whether the federal constitution was contravened. And as to that, we confine ourselves to the inquiry whether the defendants were in substance denied the right of counsel, and if so, whether such denial infringed the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. It is hardly necessary to say that the right to counsel being conceded, a defendant shall be afforded a fair opportunity to secure counsel of his own choice. Not only was that not done here, but such designation of counsel as was attempted was either so indefinite or so close upon the trial as to amount to a denial of effective and substantial aid in this regard. During perhaps the most critical period of the proceedings against these defendants, that is to say from the time of their arraignment until the beginning of their trial, when consultation, thoroughgoing investigation, and preparation were vitally important, the defendants did not have the aid of counsel in any real sense, although they were entitled to such aid during that period as at the trial itself. The prompt disposition of criminal cases is to be commended and encouraged, but in reaching that result, a defendant charged with a serious crime must not be stripped of his right to have sufficient time to advise with counsel and prepare his defense. To do that is not to proceed promptly in the calm spirit of regulated justice, but to go forward with the haste of a mob. The question to decide is whether the denial of the assistance of counsel contravenes the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to the Federal Constitution. The fact that the right involved is of such a character that it cannot be denied without violating those fundamental principles of liberty and justice which lie at the base of all our civil and political institutions is obviously one of those compelling considerations which must prevail in determining whether it is embraced within the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. While the question has never been categorically determined by this court, a consideration of the nature of the right and a review of the expressions of this and other courts makes it clear that the right to the aid of counsel is of this fundamental character. All that is necessary now to decide, as we do decide, is that in a capital case where the defendant is unable to employ counsel and is incapable adequately of making his own defense because of ignorance, 
feeble-mindedness, illiteracy, or the like, it is the duty of the court, whether requested or not, to assign counsel for him as a necessary requisite of due process of law. And that duty is not discharged by an assignment at such time or under such circumstances as to preclude the giving of effective aid in the preparation and trial of the case. The judgment of court, then, is reversed. <laughs>